0: Good morning, church. Merry Christmas. You're busy with all your preparation, appropriate holiday calisthenics, drinking your eggnog, eating your shortbread, binge-watching really bad Hallmark Christmas movies on Netflix, all that stuff. I was on um, the Ranker.com website this week, just looking up out of curiosity the ranking of Christmas movies, the all-time favorite list, the most viewed list, and and there were some that, uh, no surprise, were right up there at the top. White Christmas, It's a Wonderful Life, uh, The Dickens Tale, Christmas Carol. But one of them surprised me by how high it ranked on the list. Because it's, uh, well, it's, it's sarcastic, it's irreverent, it's a little bit vulgar. It's also hilarious. Uh, uh, hands up if you've seen National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Okay, now hands up if you're afraid to admit in church that you've seen National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. There's, <laughs> there's the rest of the hands. Okay. <laughs> it's, uh, it's kind of a warm hearted look at this, uh, uh, what would you call him, rather naive, well intentioned family man who just wants to plan an idyllic Christmas celebration for his extended family. And every, every conceivable thing that could go wrong ends up just in a bumbling mess. And it sort of pictures his descent into a Christmas madness. And at the uh, very climax of the movie, movie you catch Clark Griswold in full Christmas rant when he screams out to his family members who are trying to make their way out of the house realizing that the event has become such a failure, he says, hey, where do you think you're going? Nobody's leaving. Nobody's walking out on this fun, old-fashioned family Christmas. No, no, no. We're all in this together. This is a full-blown, four-alarm holiday emergency going on here. We're going to press on, and we are going to have the half, half, happiest Christmas since Bing Crosby tap-danced with Danny Kay. Now there were a few extra adjectives in there that we left out because it's, well, it's church and all, and we should. But the, uh, the point, and he summarizes it in one more poignant conversation he has with his wife at the end of the movie. He says, I don't know what to say, honey. It's Christmas time. We're all miserable. <laughs> Why that movie is so popular... Um, would it be an exaggeration to say it's not just because of the humor, because it's also because it taps into, taps into some of the angst uh, that is out there this time of year. We realize that somehow being in the Christmas season and being in the Christmas spirit are not the same thing at all. And lots of people experience it. People inside the church, people outside the church. There's this odd dynamic at work in our lives, about how we feel, and about how we carry our own hearts. We, we talk about all that stuff as moods. And our moods are actually a really important part of our spiritual life, although we don't often think of them together. Our mood, if you'd like, is that, is that pervasive tendency that we have to feel a certain way. And there's lots of different kind of moods, but most of the time we distill them into two different sets. There is the good mood... This side of the church, the bad moods, this side of the church. You didn't know you are in a bad mood. I just told you you were. Good mood, joyful, grateful, generous, bad mood, negative, irritated, stress-filled, whatever. And there's an odd mystery to the interplay of mood in our life. When you're in a good mood, you've noticed this side of the room, the world just kind of looks better to you, doesn't it? You wake up in the morning, you're happy to be alive, the future feels brighter, The people around you, they just look more attractive to you this week than they might have otherwise. Your job is going well. School is great. When you're in a good mood, all reality bends in your favor and it just feels better to you. The sermon sounds better than it normally does. But if you're in a bad mood, thinking how long is this thing going to go on right now? Moody people we know have... Fewer friends have more difficulty cultivating and maintaining loving relationships. They tend to be less generous, more self-absorbed. Nobody wants to be a moody person, but some of us are trapped in that situation. There's this really important, and it's a tricky kind of connection between our moods and our spiritual life. Because on the one hand, I don't think being close to God is is the same as being in a good mood. And sometimes I confuse that in my life. Somebody asks, how are you doing spiritually? And I think, well, if I'm feeling good, God must be close. I must be doing everything all right. I must be spiritually well-grounded. But if I'm in a bad mood, my spiritual life must be in the basement. Uh, God must be far away. It's important to know this about God. God cares about the moods of our lives. I actually think God probably wants people to be in a good mood. One of the characteristics, one of the manifestations of the presence of God in people's life, if you'd like, the Bible calls it the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is stuff like love and joy and peace. And and sure, all of that is going to be reflected in your mood. In fact, Mood is something that's quite contagious, isn't it? It can feel a little bit self-absorbed and say, God, I just want to pray for myself. I want to pray that you would put me in a better mood. But boy, that's a prayer that has ripple effects on those around you, right? Uh, It can feel selfish. And yet, my wife, my kids, if they're in a good mood, it puts me in a better mood. When I come to work and I've got great colleagues and they're in a great mood... It makes me ready to work, more excited about the work that I do. As a church, we want to be the kind of church where the first people that you meet at the doors, the greeters, are in a great mood. We want you to be led by worship leaders in a choir that are in a good mood, taught by people that are in a good mood. We want you sitting next to people who are in a good mood. So check it out. Look at the person next to you. What do you think? Just do a little emotional audit. Okay, but remember, mood is contagious. It spills over, so lean into the person next to you and flash them your best smile. (laughs) Mood is contagious, and uh, mood spills over. God cares about your mood. On the other hand, though, it's important to say that following Jesus is about so much more than just being in a good mood all the time. If I want my life, including my moods, to be redeemed by God, then I'm going to have to die. Part of me is going to have to die to the insistence that everything in my life, all of its circumstances, always arrive in such a way that they will put me in a good mood. Jesus coming means many things we could spend every month of the year unpacking the meaning of Christmas. But certainly one of the things that God was in the world doing, it was having an impact on the mood of the human race. Now, how does it happen? I thought kind of as an exercise that uh, we could participate in on this last Sunday before Christmas, we might look at a few of the primary characters in the Christmas story and ask the question, What did the presence of God in the world, the gift, the coming of Jesus, what did that do for their mood? How did it change? How did it affect the moods of their lives? Were they in a good mood? Were they in a bad mood? We'll we'll ask the good mood side of the congregation. We'll ask the, the bad mood side of the congregation. Let's start with the Magi. Matthew 2 says, the Magi, this group also known as the wise men, Saw the star, and when they saw the star, it gives an emotional reaction. They were overjoyed. Overjoyed. Good mood or bad mood? Good mood. Sorry, left side. How about the shepherds? They find out that God is suddenly, unexpectedly, miraculously present in the world. Luke 2, verse 10 says the shepherds return to their fields glorifying and praising God. Good mood, bad mood. Good mood. Score another one for the right side. Then there's the angels. This is going to get really lopsided, congregation. It says, The angels appeared, a great company of the heavenly host, praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest. Are they in a good mood? Sounds like they're in a good mood. In the Bible, you hardly ever read about a grumpy angel. They always seem pretty happy, but the coming of Jesus just accelerated things for them. Maybe the most remarkable story of the impact that Jesus had in the world comes in the form of, of Mary. And actually, it's Mary before we picture her or meet her in the, in the, the uh, nativity scene. This is Mary when she's pregnant. This is before the birth story. Mary who's visiting her relative, her, her cousin Elizabeth. Elizabeth pregnant with a little child who's going to grow up to be the cousin of Jesus, the man we know as John the Baptist. All Mary does is walk into the room, pregnant, Jesus inside her. And this is what the text says. In a loud voice, Elizabeth screamed, Luke 1, 41. In a loud voice, she screamed, As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears and your presence in the room, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. What kind of mood was the fetus in? Good mood? Bad mood? Good mood. Sorry again, left side. <laughs> Fetal joy, maybe for the first time in history, we don't know. Jesus apparently is a very powerful mood-enhancing force, but he doesn't always put people in a good mood. So this is your chance, everyone. Another character, one of the primary characters in the story is a man who goes by the name Herod. He gave his name a little adjective, one that was important to him, Herod the Great. He was about greatness, right? Right? One of the things about people who are consumed with greatness is they can't stand the thought that there might be people in the world who are greater than they are. Jesus comes along. Herod's threatened by him, wants to snuff him out. The Magi are involved here. They don't let him do that. And it says in Matthew 2, verse 16, that when Herod realized he'd been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders. Think about this. He gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its whole vicinity. All the newborns who are under two years of age. I'd scream too, Rafi. (laughs) What kind of mood was Herod in? Foul mood. And when somebody with a lot of power is in a foul mood, it can be very dangerous for the world. That was true then. It's especially true today. Herod had what you might think of as a kind of mood disorder, and some of us suffer from this. Whatever mood we're in, we make this association that said, my mood is fundamentally linked to my circumstances, to the web of events in my life that that are going on right now. If I have good circumstances, let's say I make some money, I get a good grade on a test, somebody pays me a great compliment, it puts me in a good mood. If I'm in bad circumstances, something really bad happens. I flunk out on that test. I face criticism and my mood plummets. And what happens is I kind of drift through my days on this current of circumstances. I wake up neutral and I expect life to give me good stuff. If it does, I'm in a good mood. If it doesn't, I'm in a bad mood. I think Herod was a very moody guy. All the money, all the power, it still didn't make him happy. He should have been the happiest guy in the world, but his life was an absolute train wreck. In fact, he was such a mean guy, foul-mooted, that when he was there on his deathbed, and he knew that nobody in the entire region would grieve his passing, his final order was this, I want you to round up 70 of the best-known, well, most-loved leaders in Israel. And I want you to throw them in jail. And the moment I die, I want you to put them all to death. And that way, at least there will be some mourning going on in Israel on the day of my death. Now, by way of contrast, there is this young girl in the story, a peasant, a maiden, no money, no power. None of the things that might allow her to ride the mood current on an uphill trajectory. Her name's Mary. She gets visited in the middle of the night, by a messenger from God. And that sets in motion a chain of extraordinary events about which we have been reading and singing and praying. And as they've all culminated, the gospel description of the Christmas story ends with these remarkable words. It says of Mary, this is Luke 2, verse 19. It says Mary treasured up all of these things. She treasured them. And she pondered them in her heart. Two words to notice in that sentence are the verbs. To treasure and to ponder. And both are really important and both are really significant. To ponder something you know means to, to reflect on something. To think about it really deeply. Mary would have looked at what was going on in light of everything that she had known or was taught about God. She went to God Himself and tried to discern, God, what are you doing in me? What are you doing in the world? Sometimes people think of that word ponder like a Hallmark moment. We'll pour ourselves a nice cup of herbal tea and we'll just savor it. That's not what's going on here. The word ponder is a word used by the prophets in the Old Testament. Those fiery messengers of God who are trying to discern God. What is it that you need to say to the world? Where are you in this? That was Mary. She was pondering. God, what are you up to? What are you doing in the world? And after pondering, she would treasure. To treasure means you value the thoughts that you're having. You delight in them. You savor them. And you allow them to move you to worship. And As a general rule, the things that we ponder and the things that we treasure will affect our moods more than anything else. What is it that you treasure? What are the thoughts that fill your mind or cloud it during the course of the day. Could be money. Could be grades. Could be your looks. Though you all look pretty good, especially this half of the room. They deserve something because you got to be in a good mood. now. Could be your health, could be your success. In Mary's case, it, It could be the sublime reality that God is present with you and loves you in a way that there was no preparing for. In the moments that remain in this message, just a a few more, I kind of wanted to walk you through five little practices that you might want to engage in for the next few days. Three days till Christmas, right? Five practices, three days that might allow you to invest deeply in something that matters. What is the Christmas spirit? What is the mood that will spill over from you into the lives of those around you this year? Five practices to, to address your mood. Here's the first. By the way, you'll find these in the back of your order of service. If, uh, if you like to keep notes, they're there. If you don't, well, they're there anyway. Here's the first. You wake up and you ask Jesus to set your mood. You do this first thing in the morning. It's a really good thing to do because how you wake up is such a key thing. There are people who are morning people. In fact, how many of you just love to wake up in the morning? You're morning people. How many of you hate people that love to wake up in the morning? How many of you are asleep right now? Our moods are a mystery to us sometimes. Actually, you, you say to people that seem grumpy, hey, you must have gotten up on the wrong side of the bed. Now listen, I'm not making this up. There is a sleep disorder researcher, his name is Neil Robinson, who did a study of over a thousand subjects and he actually found out there is a correct side of the bed. I'm not making this up. He found out, That if you get up on the left side of the bed, you are about 10% more likely to be in a better mood and be a friendlier person and enjoy your job, you're 10% more likely than if you wake up on the right side of the bed. By the way, my wife wakes up on the left side of the bed and and it's about 10% more likely that I'm in trouble for acknowledging (laughs) that right now, but... There you have it. Here's the key idea here. Uh, don't worry about the right side, left, th- left side thing. But when you get up tomorrow, and you can do this, when you get up tomorrow, make a commitment that your knees are going to go to the ground before your feet hit the floor. Now, somebody said in the first service, well, that's impossible, but you know what I mean. That your knees will hit the ground before your feet hit the floor. Instead of falling victim to all that anxious mulling that happens before you even get out of bed, just recognize this is God's day. God is going to be with you throughout it. You are in God's hand, and God loves making things fresh. Of all the adjectives that get associated with God in the Bible, one of the most recurring ones is the word new. God loves to do new things. The promise of the Old Testament says, God, your mercies are new every morning. I love that word, new. It's almost like when you're sleeping, God is at work cooking up a new batch of mercies. So the first practice tomorrow, when you get out of bed, you let your knees hit the floor before your feet hit the ground. You pray, Jesus, will you set my mood? Don't let me start the day in neutral and just allow circumstance to take me where it will. You set the day for me. Here's the second thing. Be curious, be intensely curious about Jesus and about what's going on. It staggers me how we go through this same season every year and we hear the story and we sing the songs and we gather and worship and yet it feels still like we're on autopilot. I've heard it before and last time I heard it, it was better. If nothing else, allow yourself to mull around some of the questions and just to be staggered by the immensity and the mystery of it all. This is a great line by G.K. Chesterton. I was reading him again this week. He picks up my mood. <laughs> uh, it says, as he describes the image of God lying in a manger, he writes that the hands that made the sun and the stars were now too small even to reach the heads of cattle. You think thoughts like that, and you don't let go of them. You say, God, what are you doing in the world? How immense and amazing you are. Why are you here? You sang those incredible words of Christmas carols. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. What does that mean? What does it mean to say that, that God came to earth to be something of what I am? To be, to be made up of this stuff that you and I are made of to grow in a body like mine, to experience pain and sadness and hunger and and exhaustion. God, how can it be? How well you must know me. How well you must understand us. Just be curious about that stuff. Don't be afraid to ask when you hear a carol, do I really believe that? Allow yourself to ponder the mystery of it all. I want to be the kind of church where people love God exuberantly by clapping and singing. But I also want you to love God deeply with your mind. Be curious about Jesus. Here's a third thought. Cultivate gratitude. That may seem like a given this time of year, but but hear me out on this. Somebody gives me a gift. Unexpected, extravagant, beautiful My natural inclination is gratitude. But what happens if they give me that same gift tomorrow? And the next day? And the day after that? And a week passes, and then two? The gratitude begins to slip away. And then something really fiendish happens. The gratitude turns to expectation. And expectation turns to entitlement. And heaven forbid the gift stops coming. And the response is not gratitude, it's resentment, hostility. My rights have been violated. I deserve that gift. What does it say about a relationship with God where I'm given more gifts than I could count every single day, day after day, week after week, year after year? Again, a great line from Chesterton. He says, when we were children, we were grateful to those who filled our stockings at Christmas time." Why are we not grateful to God who fills our stockings with legs? How come every morning I don't wake up and say, God, my feet mostly work? My hands work? How much giving in your life does it take to feel gratitude? And isn't it strange? John, this is a lesson that you taught me. Isn't it strange? How often people whose lives are filled with the most adversity can still feel gratitude the most keenly. So with a grateful heart, I stand before God and I say, God, you've done it again. More gifts than I count. My body, a lung full of air, friendly faces mainly awake all around me this morning. God, what can I give? How can I be a giver like you? Here's a fourth idea. This is a hard one. We won't spend too long on it, but you'll understand what we're getting at. Can we learn to worship God in the midst of our problems? There's this weird difficulty that I have, maybe you do too, where problems tend to prevent joy, Uh, problems will sink our mood, nothing does it quicker. You know, don't miss this about the Christmas story. Every single character in the Christmas story was in the middle of tremendous problems. For Joseph, the news that his young wife was pregnant was a catastrophe. We'll talk about it next week. For Mary, it was equally dangerous. She risked her very life letting that news be known. There were problems for the Holy Family. There were huge problems for the magi there were problems for the shepherds every one of them there were problems the brother of jesus a man named james would write these words years later he said consider it pure joy brothers and sisters whenever you face problems of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance consider it pure joy isn't he kidding anybody else have a hard time with that one consider it joy I was going over this in my mind this week, thinking about the message. I'm thinking, Richard, do you have any problems? Yeah, I have problems. Yeah. Richard, are you considering your problems pure joy? No, I'm, I'm not considering them pure joy, Lord. And thanks for the reminder, because now I have another problem, because I've got to stand in front of a congregation on Sunday and teach this message, and yet I still haven't mastered the living of it. So let me just give you the principle And together we work on the application. Here's the principle. Whatever your problem is, God is going to be at work in the middle of it to make you a different person. Now understand what that principle doesn't say. It doesn't say whatever your problem is, God is going to fix it right away in the way that you you best and most desire. But whatever your problem is, God is going to be at work in it. And He will make you a better person because of it. The problem doesn't separate you from God. It doesn't have ultimate power over your life. It doesn't have to rob you of your joy. So can you stand apart from it just a little bit and say, go ahead, problem. Do your work. Do your worst. But God and I are going to make it through this thing together. How many days till Christmas? Three days till Christmas. Any of you think there's going to be problems this week? (laughs) Christmas week, I promise you, you will not have enough time. Some of you will not have enough money and you won't realize it actually until January. Some of you won't have enough energy. There'll be somebody who you wish with every fiber of your being was there at the table with you this year and they're not. And for some of you, there's going to be somebody who's there at the table and you wish they were not. You're going to have problems of one sort or another. So this week, can you say, I'm going to worship God in my problems? When the problem comes, I'm going to claim the presence of God and we'll make it through together. Here's the last step and we'll wrap up. Spread the word. I mean, you know, when Jesus came when anybody actually was confronted with the reality that this is God on earth, that truth just spilled out of them. Luke says, when the shepherds had seen him, as they made their way back to their fields, they spread the word everywhere they went. They let the whole country know about this child. There was this marvelous old woman working at the temple in Jerusalem. When Jesus was brought to her, Anna gave thanks to God and listened to what she said. Luke says, describing her, that she spoke about that child to everyone in Jerusalem who is praying for the redemption of Jerusalem. Gang, there's just something about God. When I have Him and want to keep Him in the center of my life, I have to give Him away. When I talk to other people about Him in ways that are appropriate, when I ask God, hey, would you lead me, God? Would you just... Would you help me have that conversation with this person? Help me to encourage them. Give me the courage to ask them, hey, can I pray for you? What might I pray for? Help me, Lord, just to talk to this person and say, hey, you know, if you're not doing anything else, I know of this church on Cawthor Road, and they're doing a thing on Christmas Eve, and it's going to be zany and fun and meaningful, and, and you should come. I'd love for you to come with me. Something happens when you do that. God becomes more alive inside of you when you spread Him to people outside of you. And I promise you this, there is not a person in the GTA who is too smart, too rich, too healthy, too successful that they don't need Jesus. God is a fountain of joy. But Jesus said something about what really produces joy in heaven. Listen to his words. He said, I tell you the truth, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels, rejoicing in God over one lost soul who is found, one sinner who repents. So what do you say? Three days to go. Let's make some angels happy. Let's get some laughter going in heaven. And rather than just pray it, let's sing it. Let's get that choir back up here and let's proclaim the joy of the Lord. Can we do that, church? Now, hear an amen. Amen. amen.